Yes. The fewer the combatants, the greater the glory. The fewer the combatants, the greater the glory. Oh, and I need to. Okay, am I on now? Perfect. Good to see everyone. Uh, I'll say more about how much I appreciate the church and the worship hour. I was uh, driving across the vast expanse of New Mexico to get here, and I was thinking about Sunday school. Today it's almost come to mean a time of mild entertainment and a couple of uh, pleasant little moralistic lessons, but it's actually called Sunday school. And we go to school to learn things and get instruction. So today I am, by God's grace, going to offer to you humbly a little instruction on an important topic. Uh, I'm glad that I believe you're going through Rishtuni's uh, Foundations of Social Order in the class, and I'm glad that some people believe that that is, thank you, sir, that that is um, one of his best books. I agree with that. I think that might be, in fact, his best book. So I'm glad you're going through it. Well, I'm going to teach on an unusual topic today. Um, You don't often hear teaching these days on this particular topic, but it's very important and very biblical. In fact, uh, the truth I'm going to teach today is an essential part of the Christian worldview or way of understanding. And you really can't think Christianly as you should unless you understand what I'm talking about today. And it's an important truth of the Reformation. And today is, well, I'm just going to call this Reformation weekend. Yesterday was Reformation Day, not Halloween principally, Reformation Day. The 31st is Reformation Day. So let's just celebrate the Reformation this whole weekend. Is that all right, Pastor Ron? Reformation weekend. Um, So I'm dealing with a topic you may have heard of, and that is the topic of common grace. Common grace. Um, The Reformers understood this fact, and unfortunately, many... Christians today, including many conservative and evangelical Christians, don't really understand this. But if you don't understand it, you're really not going to understand how God is working in the world. So first, I would ask, what is common grace? And to get an idea, if you do have your Bible, I want to read you several verses in the book of Acts in the New Testament. Acts chapter 14 And I'm going to read verses 11 through 17. Acts 14, 11 through 17. This is when Paul and Barnabas are at Lystra. And uh, after Paul speaks these words, uh, he gets stoned. And no, I don't mean drunk or drugged up. He's literally stoned. You know, if you stand for the truth, the Bible doesn't always promise that things will go well and everything will be pleasant. We're going to win in the end, but we are in a battle, and there are difficulties, and that's good to remember. But I'm uh, reading part of the account of what happened, not all of it, just a little bit here, verses 11 through 17. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in... Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, 
one of the gods, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. You see, because they thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and, glad food and gladness. That's an interesting thing to say. God sent all of these rains and all of this good food to satisfy your hearts. These pagans he said that to. So, this is an example of common grace. Now, that word, expression, common grace, isn't in the Bible, just like the word trinity isn't in the Bible, but the idea certainly is. First, I'm going to define common grace, then I'm going to tell you what the Bible teaches about it, and then how to apply it to our lives. Uh, common grace, I want to write it down or at least remember it, maybe listen to it again as it's recorded, is God's goodness and kindness that he sheds on all people and all creation, irrespective of whether they're Christian. Now, common grace is very different from redemptive grace. We sometimes call that special grace. Now, you should know, we all should know what redemptive grace is. Redemptive grace is God's grace that he pours out on sinners that call on Jesus Christ for salvation. The Bible teaches both common grace and special or redemptive grace. Common grace simply means that God is kind to all people who aren't Christians. That's why it's called common grace. It's common to everyone. It's common to everyone. Now, one reason that people don't know much about common grace is because they have a very high view of redemption. Jesus died on the cross, and he died for me, and he rose for me, and I'm going to heaven when I die. And that's very good, and it's very true. They have a high view of redemption, but a very low and impoverished view of creation. Evangelicals in particular have this problem. And we should be biblically evangelical. I mean, the evangel is the gospel, the Evangelion, the good news, and we're gospel people. But there's more in the Bible than the gospel. Did you know that? There's more in the Bible than the gospel. Creation precedes the gospel. In fact, if there's no creation, there's no gospel. The gospel is around because Satan spoiled God's creation. He didn't do it permanently, of course, but he spoiled God's creation. Creation is the foundation for what God did in the gospel. We see God's common grace at work first in creation. And if we have a low view of creation, we'll have a very low view of common grace. Now the storyline of the Bible, the basic storyline is creation, fall, redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. In fact, if I remember correctly, the last time that one asked me to teach Sunday school, two or three years ago, I spoke 
on a Christian worldview, the basics, and I spoke on that very thing. You should remember it, unless you're very, very old, like Pastor Ron. And he's old, and he even remembered, so you don't have an excuse. So creation always comes first. We always consider redemption through the backdrop of creation. In fact, redemption was necessary in the first place because of the fall from creation, you see. You can't understand redemption if you don't understand creation because redemption is restoring creation and enhancing creation. Now, the Bible is very clear about common grace, as I defined it. So Paul's preaching at Lystra, and here's what he said about these pagans. Understand they were pagans. These were pagan people. You notice what they did. After they saw what Paul had done they, and Barnabas had done, they rush up to them and they say, you are gods, and they wanted to sacrifice. So obviously these people were pagans. But notice what the scripture said. In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he didn't leave himself without witness. Isn't that beautiful about God's grace? Even among all of these pagans that don't know anything about Jesus Christ, don't know anything about the Bible, God in his revelation in creation gives a witness to his truth. By the way, that's one reason that pagans are accountable. That's one reason that those who have never heard the gospel are still accountable for their sins. Because God did reveal himself to them. In fact, Romans 1 said he clearly revealed himself to them. Um, And notice it says here, he did good, I mean to these pagans, by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's amazing. In other words, God in his grace gives good things to pagans so that they can eat good food and be glad. You say, well, my, even unbelievers? This shows the heart of God, the goodness of God. And by the way, if you want to know why God can send people to his judgment in hell, it's because he has been so good to them. And they've turned their backs on him. God hasn't been unkind and cruel to unbelievers and the pagans. He's been very kind to them. And yet the vast majority have turned their back on him. And then Jesus taught in Matthew 5, verse 45, For God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now we know that's true, right? Notice when the valley needs rain here, the Rio Grande Valley, a little tiny cloud just doesn't come over the Christians' houses and drop rain over the Christians' fields. No, it comes everywhere. Jesus was teaching his disciples then not to hate their enemies, and he's saying you'd better not hate them because God loves them and God's kind to them. And then we read in Psalm 14, verses 5 and 8 and 9. Psalm 14 Uh, Excuse me, I said Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. 145, 8 and 9. My eyes are getting worse. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he's made. Did you notice? God is merciful and kind to all that he's made, not just Christians. Now, God grants all people this great bevy of blessings. He gives us good food. In the West, and even in other places, we can eat fresh meat and vegetables. Most of us daily. Most of us. 
If you have just a little extra money, you can go over to HEB and get all the meat you want, any day you want. And even in the third world, where poverty sometimes abounds, most people, most people aren't literally starving to death. Day by day, God provides them food. He satisfies humans' hearts with food and gladness. In other words, now I want you to think about this, this language from Acts. God wants humans, God wants his creatures to be glad. Now, he wants them to be glad his way, but he wants them to be glad. They might be his enemies, Romans 5.10 says, they are. But he still loves them. He gives them tasty food like filet and T-bone steaks and sirloin steaks. I better not let my mind wander. I'll go off and off thinking. And a man of my girth, you know that I enjoy his tasty food. And he gives them clean water, often right out of the tap, an enjoyable drink, um, Diet Coke, or even bourbon. Just, just so, notice what Paul said there, just so they can be glad, fill their hearts with gladness. But there's another reason I want us to consider that God showers his common grace on the earth. It restrains man's depravity. Now, the Bible says that man is fully depraved in Romans chapter 3. That doesn't mean he's as bad as he could be, but it means that he's depraved in every part. Every part of man, his intellect and his will, his emotions, all, every aspect of man is depraved. But God doesn't allow man's depravity generally to fully exhibit himself, itself. And you'd better be glad for that. You'd better be glad. In Romans 1, we read that God sometimes gives unrepentant, rebellious people over to a reprobate mind. But he doesn't do that most of the time. Likewise, and listen to this, in Genesis 20, God tells the pagan king Abimelech, some of you, I don't have time to go into the story, but Abimelech had seized Abraham's wife Sarah for himself, thinking that she was Abraham's uh, sister. So Abraham had kind of passed her off as that. And notice, though, what God said to him. I kept you, Abimelech, from sinning against me. That is, from taking her and having intercourse with her. God keeps the wicked from fully venting their depravity. Isn't that a good thing? Can you imagine what the world would look like if God fully removed his restraining hand? By the way, likely that's what hell will look like. All sin, all the time. Boy, that's a sobering, frightening thought, isn't it? We do get examples of this nearly unimpeded depravity, sometimes in wartime. You've seen heard stories about that, the pillage and the rape and the torture and cannibalism and butchery and debauchery. Some of what uh, the Syrians and others are suffering right now. Yet God does keep these times as very rare exceptions in history. God keeps his leash on the wicked. They want to go over and bite and destroy. And he said, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And sometimes he'll let him go nip. Oh, yeah, I'm going to let you nip. But then I'm going to pull you back. He's restraining the wicked from rushing headlong into utter depravity. God holds sin in check. That's his common grace. And then common grace doesn't only keep things from being as bad as they could be. It positively makes things very good. Many times. Let me explain that. In Genesis, we read of Cain's descendants. 
Except for Enoch, most of Cain's descendants were apparently not godly. Yet the Bible tells that these Cain's descendants created musical instruments and forged tools of bronze or brass and iron. In other words, early musical technology, musical instruments were inventions from Cain's unbelieving line. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. God showers on uh, humans of all spiritual conditions. He showers amazing gifts. Music and art and technology and entertainment and medicine. Think of them in our modern world. I mean, we talk about smartphones. Actually, do you know you're carrying around a computer in your hand? If you have a smartphone, you are carrying around a computer in your hand. It's amazing. We've come to take for granted what you're able to do. I mean, GPS in your hand. Talking to people on the phone without a hard line in your hand. Checking where the closest HEB is in your hand. Texting to people on the other side of the globe in your hand. It's just amazing. Have you ever thought about the staggering medical advances? Antibiotics and anesthetic and pain medication. You ever marveled at the music of Beethoven? Or even if you like Paul McCartney. Neither one was a Christian. And neither was Steve Jobs. And neither was Bill Gates. Steve Jobs was a Buddhist. It's terrible. And yet God used him to create amazing things. Every day we benefit from their contribution to human civilization. How many of you here kind of like movies and watch movies? Okay. You may have heard of the tragic death of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Great actor. Died with a heroin syringe in his arm. It was the last year or year before. He's likely one of the greatest character actors of all time. Many of the uh, early modern scientists, like uh, Michael Faraday, he was a pioneer in electromagnetism, were, were Christians or influenced by Christianity. But some weren't. Some weren't. Perhaps the greatest scientist of all time was Albert Einstein. He wasn't a Christian. He was a theist, but not a Christian. And yet his theoretical discoveries about space and space-time have just revolutionized modern science. And this is equally true of less well-known people who benefit society. Many of the people who surround us, who benefit us, are not Christians. Did you know that? The people who plant and harvest our corn, repair our refrigerators and our automobiles. You go to the auto repair shop and go to the service rider and say, now I only want a Christian working on my car. No, you don't say that. You want the best person possible under the conditions. That would be great if he's a Christian. These people extinguish our forest fires. They deliver everything from tennis shoes to power tools. They keep our streets safe, police officers from gangs and thugs, and they create and deliver life-saving medicine. We need these people. We need these people, even if they're not believers. In fact, and I've kind of said all of that to get to this on this point, God teaches a fascinating truth about this in the Old Testament. God told Israel that he would not expel the evil nations of Canaan very swiftly when he was sending Israel into the land. And listen to what God said. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. He said, I'm not going to do this in one year. Lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. 
what he says in Exodus 23, verse 29. Now, we sometimes uh, hear Christians say, or sort of imply, that they'd like to, God to get rid in the world of all unbelievers, sort of right away. If we just lived in a world where everybody right now was a Christian. Well, that would be nice if all people were believers, but that's not what they mean. They just get sick of being around unbelievers and want God to sort of apparently exterminate them or take them away. But if you think about it, how foolish that idea is. Our world right now couldn't go on without gifted unbelievers. Common grace assures that there's continuity in history. Think about that. Common grace assures that God's plan is working out in history. These unbelievers are a great benefit to God's world, including to us. We couldn't operate our world without them. He uses them in our lives to, to help us, and we help them too, even apart from the preaching of the gospel, which is the main thing. But we help them, and they assist us in God's continuity and working out his kingdom in history. And my view of eschatology and that of you is that more and more as time goes on, through the preaching of the gospel, many, many, many more will be converted. But the Bible doesn't teach that every single person, every single person will be converted even when Jesus comes. There will always be unbelievers in the world, and they're here for God's good purposes and to assist us and because God is kind. Now, having said all that, let me kind of take the other side. Think how utterly incomprehensible is the ingratitude of unbelievers. Think about that for a minute. God gives them delightful food. He gives them comfortable shelter. He gives them impressive transportation. He gives them business opportunities. He gives them in the West and other places, Northern Europe, and more and more of the world all the time because of the free market, expendable income, and most of them, most of the time, sound health. And what do they do? They mock God. Or if... They don't mock him, they turn their back on him, avoid him. They act as though these blessings are a result of their own ingenuity, of their own hard work. They deplore God's holy law. They poke fun at godly Christians. At best, at best, they live their lives without reference to God. Romans 1 says they do not like to retain God in their thoughts and their knowledge. I would say there's no greater ingratitude in the universe than ingratitude toward God and toward his kindness. Yet even here, despite their ingratitude, God drenches unbelievers with his common grace. Have you ever noticed how kind God is to unbelievers? How kind he is. He gives them abundant time to repent. You know, God is often more gracious and merciful than we are. My attitude sometimes when I see the wickedness, I'm just sick of that. I wish God right now would send on fire and burn them up. And then the Holy Spirit smites my heart and said, wait a minute, you don't know what my plans are. I give people a long time to repent. I was thinking as I was preparing this, Peter tells us in the days of Noah, the, the days when God seemed to remove his hand of restraint. And if you read back there in Genesis 6, it says, the imagination, the thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually. In other words, God's common grace had been almost completely removed. And it seems as though people got up in the morning and 
Right when they woke up, it seems their attitude was, what can I do to pillage and murder and rape? I want to live my entire day in defiance of God. Isn't that terrible? Almost, almost the entire earth. Except for one godly man and his family. And yet, God didn't say, I'm going to now send my judgment and next week, if you don't repent, fire is going to fall or, as eventually happened, I'm going to send a great flood. No, Peter said, would you like to know when those people were so wicked how long God waited? Those of you that have, how, have read the word, how long did God wait? 120 years. I think I would call that a patient God. If the entire earth were filled with that evil, you and I would say, oh God, please judge them immediately. And yet, God waited 120 years and he sent a godly man to preach for 120 years. Don't tell me that God isn't a gracious God. And to all of these unbelievers that say, why did God allow the plane to crash? That isn't a very nice God. Why did God allow somebody to get cancer? And I'm not making fun of those things. I realize those are very difficult. But understand that God is an immensely gracious and merciful God and is so kind. And yet, sadly, the wicked are defined. Now perhaps you can understand when people say, how is it possible for God to judge the wicked in eternity? That's how it's possible. He has been merciful and gracious and kind. He's given his revelation to them clearly wherever they turn. He's given them good food. He's given them good water. And even those who go through some difficulties, they're breathing God's good air, even those in areas of Africa where they have to hunt for their food every day and women have to walk a long way to get water. He gives them water and he gives them food and they live and they have a little shelter. And think about those of us in the West how much less cause and less reason have unbelievers here to complain? Lovely air conditioning in the balmy Rio Grande Valley. And great food and many times good jobs. And people complain and turn their back on God. How gracious he is. I want to conclude with one supreme lesson for us Christians and then we can take time for questions. I said the Bible is bigger even than the gospel. God's grace is bigger than the gospel. God's grace overwhelms the universe. His grace and mercy overwhelm the universe. It just saturates creation. God's grace rains down on unbelievers. For this reason, God is worthy of praise and he's worthy of worship. My friend Don Brosimley back in California is very fond of saying, if it's not worship, it's idolatry. By the way, understand that worship doesn't just happen at 1030 at Church of the King on Sunday mornings. That's a concentrated form of communal worship. But your life and mine should be given in worship to God all day long. We live lives of worship. And God's worthy of worship not just for his redemption but also for his creation. I want you to listen to Psalm 104, verse 33. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. We encounter God's grace everywhere in the world, either his redemptive grace for Christians or his common grace, everybody. 
God is worthy of worship and he is worthy of praise wherever we see it. And that's why we should live lives of worship. And when we go and speak the gospel to unbelievers, we tell them that they have broken God's law in the face of his kindness, in the face of his goodness to them. That is God's common grace. And you cannot really understand, as you should, a Christian worldview without understanding God's overwhelming common grace. Are there any questions?